Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemer. It's great to have you with us. If you would like to follow along with me in your Bible or in a bulletin, you can do so by turning with me to John chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 31. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. Again, my name is Sean Slate. We're so glad that you're here with us because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing from the comfort of your own home. You might be at home taking bets on how many haircuts I have left in me, uh, or you might be at home uh, after having heard Karen's prayer uh, thinking about, oh, today's Mother's Day. And so you might be on your computer buying a present uh, for your mother and having it sent to her as quickly as possible by a drone or something. Uh, You might be at home Googling what a murder hornet is, or you might be Googling how to be a vegan due to the reported meat shortages that might be on their way. Uh, But you're not doing any of those things. You're here with us this morning, and we're really thankful that you are. And the reality is that there's nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than to worship the risen Christ and to consider his claims upon us this morning. So I do want to welcome you to Redeemer. I want to thank you for coming. What is Redeemer? Well, uh, thanks for asking. Redeemer is a church, and what that means is that we're a people. We're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, and he has come into this world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together to worship him and learn to rest in that love that he has for us. And as we rest in that love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in community. We try to figure out how we can get together, whether it's by Zoom calls or face chats or Instagrams, however we can get together. We love to get together in order to remind each other that great love that God has for us in Christ. And so as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight together uh, in service so that somehow together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the matrix, it would spill out throughout the entire world, that the world would know the great love of our Heavenly Father. That's who we are. We're people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, uh, what we're doing during this Eastertide is we're looking at all the post-resurrection interactions with Jesus and his disciples throughout the Gospels. And so with that in mind this morning, I want us to think about resurrection belief, all right? Resurrection belief from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails 
and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would be with us now. We are thankful that you are a God not hidden or silent, but one who delights to be, to, to be known, one who speaks and reveals himself in your word by your Holy Spirit, and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus. It's our prayer now that as we attend unto this, your word, you would attend unto us, that we would see lovely, beautiful things of you, that we might believe. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as a kid growing up in the 80s, I loved Michael Jordan. And I thought Michael Jordan was everything. And I wanted to be like Mike. I wanted to drink Gatorade like Mike. I wanted to jump like Mike. I wanted to wear Air Jordans like Mike. I had that poster of Mike from the dunk contest where he had jumped from the, ha- from the uh, foul line. His tongue is out. His knees are up. And it looks as if he's flying through the air. Uh, when I was a kid, Kyle Munyon and I got on our bikes and we rode up to the 7-Eleven and we bought basketball cards. And the first pack of basketball cards that I ever purchased had the Michael Jordan rookie card in it, the most coveted card on the market right now, that Fleer Michael Jordan. It's mine. Uh, it's amazing. I love Mike. And I have been saying that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time to my son for a very, very long time. And so when the Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, started to come out a few weeks ago, my son and I settled in. And as we started watching The Last Dance, my son was saying to me, well, sure, Jordan was good, but he's no LeBron. Sure, Jordan is good, but he's no Kobe. And then we started to watch the highlights. And we watched Jordan destroy Kobe in the All-Star game. And then we watched that surreal moment in the documentary when Kobe was being interviewed. This is post Kobe's death, as you know. And Kobe himself says, if there's no Jordan, there's no Kobe. Everything I learned, I learned from him. We went on to watch as Jordan dominated that famous uh, scrimmage of the dream team in 92. We went on to watch as Jordan dropped 63 points on Larry Bird's Boston Celtics. And after the fifth episode, my son looks at me and he says, yeah, Jordan's the best player ever, right? I'd been telling him this for years, right? But he'd never seen it. 
He'd only seen the greatness of Kobe. He'd only seen the greatness of LeBron. And no matter what I said, until he saw it, he couldn't believe. But when he saw, he believed. My son is a lot like Thomas in our passage. You see it in verse 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But when he saw, he believed. And belief is the goal of John's gospel. The goal of this testimony in this text is that we would believe. John is telling us the things that he has seen so that with him we might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in these books or in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose is that we would believe and that in believing we would have life. Do you believe that? That's the goal this morning, that you would believe. Say it with me, I believe. And belief now speaks, right? Belief speaks into our fears. I want you to notice that the disciples were afraid. You see it in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. I want you to think about this event. It's the resurrection day. Jesus has been crucified by the authorities because they saw him as a potential revolutionary who was plotting to overthrow Rome, who was claiming to be the true king. And after having crucified him, his followers now are locked up in this room thinking they might be next. But not only that, it's the resurrection morning. And the body is gone. And the Jews and the Romans are wondering where the body went. And they are thinking that the disciples have taken the body. And now they're plotting to use this idea of resurrection to insert a riot and to, uh, to begin this new revolution. And they're afraid. Locked in this room together trying to figure out how they can be safe. I'm sure many of you as Christians are afraid. Um, maybe you're afraid of persecution. I don't know if that would be the case here in Knoxville. But many of our Christian friends around the world are afraid. Because by professing the name of Jesus, by following the risen Christ in a public way, they could be imprisoned or they could be killed. But that's not the fear for most of us here in Knoxville. Our fears aren't really about persecution. But we, too, even as Christians, do find ourselves afraid. Like them, we're afraid that maybe God would abandon us. We're afraid that maybe somehow God has forgotten us. We're afraid that our lives are just a big failure. We're afraid of death. 
Some of us are even afraid to live. And like many, uh, and like them, many of us find ourselves locked behind closed doors, filled with fear. And behind those doors, we're neither living nor are we dying. I'm not sure if any of you have ever heard of this book series called Harry Potter. Uh, It's a book series about a boy who finds out that he's a wizard and he's invited to go to this wizarding school uh, called Hogwarts. And when he gets to that school, all this magic begins to happen. It's getting popular, but anyway, uh, you'll hear of it at some point. But over the last few weeks, I've been rereading the Harry Potter series. And one of the things that I had never seen before is in book five. And in book five, towards the end, Harry's thinking about death and he's trying to figure out what death is all about. And so to figure out what death is all about, he goes to visit a ghost named Nearly Headless Nick. And he asks Nearly Headless Nick about death and how someone might become a ghost. And Nick says to him, I was afraid of death. So I chose to remain behind. Sometimes I wonder whether I should have done that. Well, that's neither here or there. In fact, I'm neither here nor there. I know nothing of the secrets of death, Harry, for I chose my feeble imitation of life instead. I chose my feeble imitation life instead. And sadly, I think many of us live like ghosts, locked up in fear, physically and emotionally, so afraid of dying that we are afraid to live. And in the midst of these fears, Jesus loves to show up. Jesus loves to come and be among us in our fears. And I want you to notice that our locked doors cannot keep him from us. Verse 19 The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. The doors were locked. Maybe this is saying something about the resurrection body and its abilities to move through doors, or maybe the doors were locked and they have to answer uh, and open at his command. We don't know, it doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that Jesus loves to come among his people in the midst of their fears. Do you believe this? I believe. Say it with me. I believe. And when he meets us, he says, peace be with you. He speaks peace to our fears. And what does he do? He shows them his wounds. Notice verse 20. When he, said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and he said to them again, peace be with you. Isn't that strange that he would say, peace be with you, and then show the wounds, that somehow the wounds would offer peace? How would the wounds offer peace? The wounds offer peace because they prove that Jesus is actually bigger than all of your fears. His wounds prove to us that death will not win. His wounds prove to us that our sins are forgiven. His wounds prove to us that we are loved. And aren't these some of our biggest fears that at death, 
There's just nothing. Or that at death, there's only judgment. Are we all not deep down afraid that somehow God really hates us? But the wounds speak peace. And the wounds speak peace because they promise that death is not the end. And that though death might come to all of us and death when it comes, it's the wounds that give life. It's his wounds that offer life to all who believe. And his wounds bear witness to the fact that the judgment of God has been served and that judgment did not go out on us, but it went out on him. And therefore, those wounds bear witness to the fact that God loves us. It's what we sang a little bit ago. Right, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Does God love you? Look at the wounds. Does God forgive you? Look at his wounds. Will God receive you at your death? Look at his wounds. Will you live with him forever? Look at his wounds. What Jesus is telling us in the upper room is that no matter what happens, no matter what fear comes your way, he is with you. And he is saying, keep your eyes on my wounds. Do you believe this? I do. I believe. Say this with me. I believe. And then look at verse 20. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's an amazing text because what God is doing is he is giving his spirit to fearful human beings. One of the great truths of the gospel, one of the great truths of the character of God is that he loves to make weak and fearful people strong and courageous in him. And therefore he breathes on them. It's a strange act, right? That he would stand among them, he'd show the wounds and then he would breathe on them. What's going on? Well, it's an echo. It's an echo from Genesis uh, chapter two probably remember that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. And when he formed him, right, he then breathed into his nostrils. He breathed what we sang about in the hymn of illumination. He breathed the breath of life. And when he did that, man became a living creature. You remember that? That man came alive as the Holy Spirit was breathed out upon him and he began to live. And that life then commissioned him and sent Adam out as an image bearer, commissioning him to reflect and bear witness to God and to the entire creation. And so here we are on the day of resurrection, uh, the eighth day, a week after the resurrection, This is the resurrection day. It's on the resurrection day. 
the first day of a new creation. And the Spirit is once again breathing life into his people so that we might open the locked doors of fear and go out boldly and confidently reflecting the love and forgiveness of God to the world. And again, this is the goal of John's gospel, that we would have life. You see this in verse 31, that by believing you may have life in his name. And this life that John is talking about is this life of peace. It's this abundant life. It's this life of shalom, a life of wholeness. Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, describes it this way. He says, life exists where there is no longer the abysmal dread of death, the awful weight of guilt, the horrid emptiness of meaninglessness, the lifeless absence of God, and the futile quest of the world's multiple gods and idols. Life is present wherever Jesus and all that he means is appreciated and finally trusted. And that's what Jesus is doing among them. He's with them, saying, I'm the meaning of all things. He's with them, showing them his wounds, saying, your sins are forgiven. There's no longer fear of death because I've overcome it. And so the resurrected, resurrected Jesus comes among them, breathes on them, making them new replacing fear with life so that we might rest in the Father's love, so that the Spirit might remind us of the Father's love as he sends us out to reflect the Father's love throughout the world. Do you believe this? I believe. So say it with me. I believe but belief doesn't just interact with our fears. Belief also interacts with our doubts. And we see this clearly in Thomas, and we love to pick on Thomas for his doubt. We make fun of him, and we call him Doubting Thomas. But again, this passage is a gift from God to us. Because doubt uh, doesn't drive away belief. In fact, often doubt flows out of belief. And that was the case for Thomas. I want you to think about this story with me. We don't know why Thomas wasn't with the others when they saw the resurrected Jesus that evening. Um, but when they saw the resurrected Jesus, they went and they told Thomas. And they said, Thomas, we've seen him. We've seen the resurrected Jesus. And Thomas can't believe it. And I think this, this is important to point out because it is easy for us as modern people uh, to look down upon pre-modern people. It's easy for us to look down on the people of the Bible and think, oh, how naive and how gullible they were for believing in things like miracles and demons and the resurrection. But that's not the way the Bible tells the stories of these people. When people experienced demons and miracles and resurrection, they are often scared and they often doubt and sometimes they're amazed 
and sometimes they believe. And so here we see Thomas, and like the other disciples, they knew that dead people remain dead. And this is why seeing the wounds was important. Because Thomas knew that unless Jesus rose from the dead, his Messiah project had failed. Thomas knew that what we now call Christianity would be a lie if Jesus did not rise. And that's the claim of Christianity. That Jesus died and he really rose again. That his resurrection isn't metaphorical. That his resurrection isn't merely inspirational. But when he rose, he actually physically came alive again. Body and blood. Walking and talking, eating and drinking. And this is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped only in this life, we are of all pity, a people most to be pitied. I mean, that's incredibly honest. What he's saying is that if Jesus didn't rise, we are to be pitied. And if Jesus didn't rise, then our religion, all this stuff that we're doing together, it is in vain. And that's the point of Thomas. That Christianity isn't therapy. That Christianity isn't just a way to make your life work. Christianity isn't nice community and a good group of friends. Christianity hangs or falls on the resurrection. No resurrection, no salvation. No resurrection, no point in being a Christian. Stop watching the, the, this service. Go play golf. Go for a hike. Get in a canoe. But if he rose, he is everything. And this is why the famous Christian priest and professor Yaroslav Pelikan on his deathbed is claimed to have said, if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then nothing else really matters. If the resurrection of Jesus did not actually happen, then nothing else really matters. And here's his point. If Jesus rose from the dead, he's taking care of everything. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what's the point of living? You see, Christianity is first and foremost about the historic event of Jesus. As many of you know, as Christians, we talk about this word gospel. And gospel literally is sort of the good news. Christianity is about good news. It's not about good advice. It's not good life. Though advice and though life are often responses to the news of Jesus, Christianity is about what we confess in the liturgy, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. Christianity is first about what God has done for us in Jesus. And if he has not done it, then there is no point in anything we do. 
Do you believe this? I believe. Say it with me. I believe. And this is why Thomas is so important for us because what he is saying is, I will never believe unless I see him in the flesh. I will never believe unless this really happened. And that's the point of this text. It happened. Mary saw him. Peter saw him. The disciples on the road to Emmaus saw him. Now the ten are seeing him. Now Thomas is seeing him. Later on, he appears to more than 500 people at one time. They saw what we believe. We believe what they saw. And Jesus is saying that by believing, we are blessed. Look what he says at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. People often take this as a rebuke to Thomas, and maybe it was. But I think something else is going on here. I think John is sort of leaving a little note for us. It's sort of like he's breaking what they call the fourth wall in cinema. Like when Ferris Bueller like turns and looks at the camera and tells us how to pretend like we're sick, right? Or how Michael Scott turns and tells us a joke on The Office. What John is doing here is he's looking at us and he's almost winking to us and he's saying, blessed are you who have not seen but believe." And for the rest of Christian history, and until he comes again, almost everyone believes, b- believes because of this testimony. Because of the testimony of the apostles. You see, as Christians, we believe their testimony about Jesus. They knew him. They saw him. They were friends with him. They put their hands in his side. They ate with him. We believe their testimony that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and he has promised to come again. I think one of the painful aspects of this story is that uh, Thomas uh, didn't believe his best friends. Those were like 10 of his best friends in that room. He'd known them most of his life. They were men and women who he was friends with. They were men and women who had, he had followed Jesus with. They were men and women whom he had encouraged back in John chapter 14 to like go and die with Jesus. He was willing to die with these men and women in following after Christ. And the gift of this passage is that Jesus is kind to confirm their testimony to Thomas. And by confirming it to Thomas, he's confirming it to us. He's saying all of their testimony, the testimony of Peter, the testimony of the ten, the testimony of Mary, it is all true. Put your hand in my side. Put your hand in the wounds because I am risen. And now that spirit who is breathed out on the apostles, giving them life, and a life that accompanies their words so that when we read and we hear their words of the resurrected Jesus, we find life and peace in his wounds. 
Do you believe this? I believe. So say it with me one last time. I believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do believe. We trust the testimony. We trust your resurrection. We look to your wounds that we might find peace. And so thank you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.